0: Hello, and welcome to the First Baptist Hanford podcast. Our primary mission at FBH is to love God, love people, and serve the world. We hope that this weekly podcast will encourage you in your daily walk with Christ as we play for you our most recent sermon audio. Let's have a listen. We are, uh, we're launching into this new series called Oikos, Be Intentional with Your 8 to 15. Um, and so as we proceed through the series, it's going to take up the next six weeks or so. It's going to take us right into kind of a uh, launch of the fall and that sort of thing. Uh, and it's positioned here Intentionally. Um, Because if you were to look around the room today, we're in what you would call the summer slump in ministry, right? People are out traveling, they're doing stuff and that sort of thing. And it's a great opportunity for our people. Um, who call this their home, a great opportunity for us to really be able to equip you for a season that happens starting in August. When people's schedules get back to normal, kids are back in school, they can't take long weekends anymore and that sort of thing, where we get an opportunity really to invite people back to church. And so, man, this series, I think, is going to be an incredibly powerful one as long as we, we, are, we have soft hearts to it. We have uh, I was going to say soft heads, but that's really weird. We open our minds to it. Um, and uh, and I, I really do think it's going to be a phenomenal series. Um, now, Oikos, uh, and, and we'll talk about what it means in just a second, but Oikos was largely introduced to me when I went down to HDC. Okay. But that's not where my story starts. Actually, where my story starts is when I was born two months premature. Um, I know. You guys are like, what? That guy? He's so strong and muscly. He was two months premature? That's crazy. I know. I agree with you. I can't believe it either. Sometimes, um, but uh, but no. So I was born two months premature. But that was the, the the. I was born into a Christian home. Is the way most of us would call it, right? Born into a Christian home. My parents both went to church. Went to Merced First Baptist. We were three blocks away, and so we would walk to church oftentimes. Well, I wouldn't walk. I'd be in my my big wheel. Anybody remember the big wheels, right? And then I would always do my best to like stop and be like, "Hey, mom, I ran out of gas," and then she pushed me. And it was awesome. I didn't have to do anything to get to church, right? And so, but, but that was my childhood, I remember, until I was about 10 years old. And and even even before that, at First Baptist up in Merced, there was a man by the name of Kevin Borges. Kevin Borges is one of the guys who was responsible for, uh, for family ministry there. And so I distinctly remember being in third grade and him asking me to go to Sugar Pine on a winter retreat, um, which is crazy that our students are going to Sugar Pine today. The ministry that Sugar Pine has done over the last however many years, I don't even want to count, um, is incredible. But uh, he invited me to go to camp when I was in third grade. And I still remember that camp. I remember a girl telling me for the first time at that camp that she thought I was cute. And I was like, what? What does that mean? (laughs) I want to go do other fun stuff, like, you know, whatever rec games are going on and that sort of thing. But Kevin Borges was intentionally about talking to me at our children's church, at our kids' church, to saying, hey, man, you should really come to camp. It is so much fun. I remember hiding under my blankets in the bunk bed at night, doing my best, to just like pray that I would fall asleep. Like, please, God, let me fall asleep. I'm not at home. I don't know any of these people except my brother, and I'm freaking out right now. Um, but Kevin was intentional. And then after Kevin, we, we actually, we switched churches. We went to uh, a church called Yosemite Church in Merced after that. And then uh, there was a guy there by the name of Jim Beadle and Jim had two sons. They were both kind of near my age. One was older, one was younger. Um, And so me and my brother became friends with them. And Jim invited me and my brother Michael over all the time. He's like, Hey, you guys want to hang out? Come hang out, come hang out. Now, in hindsight, he may have just trying to be keeping his kids busy rather than us, like actually him being intentional with us. But I remember having conversations with him. I remember uh, even at camp with Jim and him saying, hey, I want to know what your relationship with Jesus looks like. And I remember having that conversation in fifth grade, sixth grade, seventh grade with them. And then in high school, I had two friends that I met, Jordan and Caleb, those are the ones that I've introduced before as fire and gasoline, and I was the voice of reason, right? I, I met those friends, and they were incredibly, we as a group were intentional with one another to be able to hold one another accountable and say, hey, if it is, if we are going to be following Jesus, this is what that looks like in a high school context. And we did our best, it was through the lens of high school students and that sort of thing, so of course we messed up, but we were incredibly intentional With each other, and then I started going to a youth group in Atwater, and the youth pastor there was a guy by the name of Josh Lane, and Josh would invite me out for coffee on a weekly basis, and then he got me plugged into a small group with two guys named Kevin Helton and Amitesh Dial, two two people that I still count as friends now, and we were in a small group together for two years, my both my junior and my senior year, I was in a small group with those guys, still people who are my life. Kevin uh, was one of the uh, the groomsmen in my wedding. and so then, then even after that, uh, I got into college. And in college, I had two roommates. One name was Seth. One's name was Adam. They were, both, uh, they were both about five years old. So they were 25 in the workforce already. They had graduated college, all of that stuff. And I remember the intentionality that they had with us, with me and my other roommate, Caleb, about talking about what it looks like in college to be able to pursue Jesus, what it looks like to uh, be, held, be, be above reproach with Jesus. And at that same time, I was working at a church. It was my first real job working at a church. Um, I said real job, but I was an intern. So I don't know if that's a real job or not, but um, I wasn't making photocopies. So I guess it's a real job. But my boss was a guy by the name of Scott Vance. And Scott made sure that the things that I was doing wasn't only becoming to Jesus, but on top of that, it was excellent as well saying, no, you can do better than this. I know that you can do better than this. You're mailing it in right now. And so he was someone who held my feet to the fire. Then after that, I went to Fresno State, met a guy by the name of Jeff Bachman, who became my mentor. And then after, after Jeff Bachman, or during that season of Jeff Bachman, uh, my wife, me, me and my wife got married. And so then my wife from that point until uh, now and hopefully for a long time after that er, is going to be somebody who continues to pour into my life and continues as intentional, uh, being intentional with me. Her and the boys aren't here this morning, but she knows what time I go on stage. I just got a text message uh, before I came on, on stage. She said, hey, I'm praying for you. Remember, Jesus has all the authority, not you. Like, thanks, honey. I appreciate that, <laughs> which is great. <laughs> I wouldn't want it any other way. But then after Sarah and I got married, we moved to Selma and I started my, I guess my first real job as a youth pastor, met a guy named Denver Silva and him and I were incredibly intentional with each other. Then after that, uh, my wife, my wife's family, her brothers specifically were people that I count as close who were intentional with me. And then I moved to Apple Valley and I had two people that I worked with specifically by the name of Matt Colomb and Evan Nelson. And those two guys were incredibly intentional with me and making sure that I was continuing to walk with Jesus. And then on top of that, I was in a small group with guys in it by the names of, of Matt, Paul, Dan, and Daryl. And I walked with those guys for five years straight. And then after that, I got called to Hanford. And as I got to Hanford, I recognized one of the most important pieces of this, one of the most important pieces of me being able to help shepherd and lead a congregation is having people who are smarter than me speak into my life. And so the, the, the suspects are a little bit shaky. But I have guys in my life like Jeff Milhan, Mm. (laughs) Kyle Ralph, Mm. (laughs) Dave Fox, Garrett Gilcrease, right? Danny Gavini even sometimes is a shining light in the office. And then the other 15 people that are in mine and Sarah's small group. Now, I share that story. I share those things. It's because of those people that I stand here today. It's because of those people, not just because I'm a pastor, I stand here today, but it's because of those people that I have faith in Christ today. And now every single person in this room is in this room specifically because there was somebody at some point brought you to church. Maybe not this one. Maybe it was a different one growing up. Maybe, maybe they didn't physically bring you here, but they invited you here at some point, right? Just like Erica had like 15 different people inviting her to church saying, hey, you should come check us out, come check us out, come check us out. And finally, I think we wore her down, we did a church, check us out. And then she showed up, but every single one of us, someone is responsible for you being here. And I know we come from all different walks of life, we have different histories, but every single one of us is here because someone introduced them to Jesus or at the very least introduced them to church. Every single one of us. A lot of people think uh, that because I'm a pastor, I have a greater spiritual influence on people than others. Actually, that couldn't be further than the truth. Because you get me here for, for 45 minutes on a Sunday. And for the most part, I won't speak with the majority of you until next weekend for 45 minutes. See, I don't have the greatest spiritual influence in your guys. Now, when I'm up here, I'm talking about God for the most part. and I'll tell a ridiculous story and getting back to talking about God. So I do have spiritual influence in that way. But if you attend church today because someone who was in your family, one of your friends or your coworkers brought you or talked to you about church. So friend, family, coworker invited you to church. I just want you to raise your hand. Raise your hand if any of those things are true. Okay, most of you are lying right now, or you're lazy, one of the two. Because you're not here by accident. Most of you aren't here because of a Facebook post. Most of you aren't here because of a newspaper article. Maybe one or two of you. and That's great. We're glad you're here. But the vast majority of people today are in church because somebody else brought them here. Somebody else invited them here. Somebody else introduced them to Jesus. Statistically speaking, pastors only account for 5% of people being at church, 5% for being in church. Now that changes for people staying at a church. Then it's the opposite, right? Pastors account for 75% of people's decisions for being, or leaving a, for being at or leaving a church, to which I feel a burden and responsibility but 5% of people come to a church because of the pastor for the first time. They'll stay because of what's going on, but for the first time, it's 5%. That number is minuscule. And we love to, I mean, we don't love to, we live in a world where people love to go to famous churches right now, right? I mean, it's the, the, the celebrity pastor. People have a kind of, how can my church feed me? mentality. What is it that you're doing for me? How is it that that you can bless me, church? Then maybe I'll grace your doorways. What are you doing for me? The kingdom of God suffers when that is the mentality. Where pastors have really made it, if they're famous, They've really made it if they're recognized in the community and can hardly wait, Elvis can hardly wait to show up next weekend to see what shenanigans are going to happen next. Because, man, church is exciting. And it should be. And it should be fun. But if that's our main impetus for bringing people through those doors, we're failing as a church. We're failing as followers. The kingdom of God suffers because what we're going to realize and maybe what you already know is that the vast majority of kingdom building doesn't happen in buildings like this. It doesn't happen in buildings like Koinonia or on Dowdy Street. That's not where the vast majority of kingdom building happens. In fact, buildings are bottlenecks to church growth. Did you know that? Buildings are bottlenecks to church growth. If you've been around here for a long time, you know that for a fact. Because if you were over on Dowdy, you had to move over here because the building was a bottleneck to you growing. Buildings are a bottleneck to church growth. We have parking issues. If we get too full, people stop showing up. If my messages don't resonate, people stop showing up. If people's preferences aren't met, we lose people. If we have too many kids and not enough classrooms, we lose people. The Sunday morning experience, if that's your view of church, it's largely going to be disappointing to a whole lot of people. Because Sunday morning is not church. The church has never been and will never be confined to the walls of the building, will never be confined to the charisma of a pastor, and it will never be confined to a really fun experience on Sunday morning. If it did, it never would have made it beyond the first century. Your friends, your families, your coworkers those people account for over 88% of people coming to church. Those people are what we call your oikos. Oikos, you can fill in a blank, is the Greek word for household. Oikos is the Greek word for household. And something that we need to get out of the way from the get-go is that Oikos is not a program, okay? Oikos is not a program. It's not something we do until we get to three services and then we've arrived and we can stop doing things. It's not something that we do until we can pay off our building's debt. It's not something we do until we're the biggest church in Kings County. It's not a program. If it's a program, then it'll be as successful as our last evangelistic campaign was, and as far as I know, no churches in the entire world have had a wildly successful evangelism program because evangelism's not a program in the same way that discipleship is not a program. It doesn't work that way. Beyond that, there are very few pastors. If, if, if you were to ask them point blank, what is your strategy for evangelism at your church? Very few people would have an answer for you. Very few pastors would have an answer for you. And I've told you and many people smarter than me will agree that church in America is on the decline. Recent stats tell us that 20% of Americans go to church on the weekends, 20%. that's not even good for baseball. Only 20% of people in a nation that we claim was founded on the belief of religious freedom are coming into buildings like ours on Sundays. But the good news is is that nowhere in the New Testament does it tell us that church is a place that you plug into your GPS to find your way. And for us in our current context, around a road closure on the weekends. See, the Greek word for church is is a word some of you are probably familiar with. It's the word ekklesia. Ekklesia is the Greek word for church. It didn't mean building. Ekklesia meant a, a gathering of believers. And later on, when you're at home and this building is empty, this building will no longer be a church. This will be a building. It will simply be a building because the church has left the building. Six years ago, Uh, Like I said, I went to be a youth pastor at High Desert Church, met a man named Tom Mercer, um, and he invited me to come onto his team for the first time in my life. It was made abundantly clear to me what the best strategy for reaching people for Jesus was. Oikos, which I said, like I said, meant household. It's not something that he made up. Actually, he got it from uh, an older gentleman, an older friend of his, and he got it. It it kind of sounds like a wives' tale, the way it was passed down from pastor to pastor. Tom was the first successful one to be able to make it known. If you go home and you Google Oikos, but you have to Google Oikos Church or else you're going to get a whole lot of yogurt posts when it comes first, right? But if you Google Oikos Church, this isn't an HTC thing. This isn't me coming here saying, hey, Hanford, get your act together. HTC was way better or anything like that. This is a global thing. This is things that that people are using in Korea, in Australia, in England, It's things people are using all over the United States because it's such a powerful strategy. And I don't know where it goes back to, but every single person, every single pastor who has studied the idea of oikos, those are people, like I said, that didn't invent it out of thin air. They would say they discovered it as they read through scripture. That they discovered it as they read through scripture because the vast majority of people who came to faith in the New Testament came to faith because of an oikos connection. The vast majority. And he's like, I don't believe you. That's fine, you don't have to. I'm gonna prove it to you over the course of the next six weeks. The vast majority of people came to faith because of an oikos connection. Now, back in biblical days, there was generally a figurehead in the household. Oftentimes, it's the breadwinning male, had numerous people living under his household. So this Greek term was one that didn't just mean like your wife and your kids. It was essentially anyone under your care. Your household would represent frequent or meaningful relationships. Your household would represent frequent or meaningful relationships. Relationships. These are all people who are underneath the shield and protection under the care of one person. These are people who are in direct relationship and community with one another under the care of that single person. And the way that we use it is the same in concept. Your oikos are people who are in direct community with you on a regular basis under the headship of one God. And that's the way that we use it we would say something like this. Everyone has eight to 15 people that God has both supernaturally and strategically placed on the front burner of your life to make an impact for the kingdom of God. Everyone has eight to 15 people that God has both supernaturally and strategically placed on the front burner of your life to make an impact for the kingdom of God. And that's why if you look at your Oikos card, this guy that we handed to you today And We'll get to that in a little bit, but if you were to look at that, you see 15 lines. We'll get to that later, but there's 15 lines for people who are already in your world. I'm not saying go out and make 8 to 15 new friends. I mean, you can, and that'd be great. For some of you, you're like, no, that's exhausting. I'm not doing that. Friends are work. That's true. I'm not asking you to do that. I'm asking you to recognize the eight to 15 people who are already in your world. People who I'm gonna challenge you today and for the next few weeks to be intentional about praying for and talking with about God. But like I said, there's oikos stories all through scripture. And today we're gonna focus on one. And we need to understand that. First and foremost, praying for and reaching one's oikos was Jesus's preferred method for the spread of the gospel. Was Jesus's preferred method method for the spread of spread of the gospel. I'm going to ask you to flip to an incredibly famous story in John chapter 4. John chapter 4. And we're going to be starting in verse 4. We'll have it up the screen uh, on the screens if you don't have your Bible with you. But John chapter 4, verse 4, it says this. Now he had to go through Samaria. Okay, so it was talking about Jesus here. He had to pass through Samaria. This was the shortest route from Judea to Galilee that many Jews used, but it wasn't the only route, okay? Some strict Jews who didn't want any contact with the despised Samaritans, and we're gonna to get to that in a second, would take a longer route. They would cross the Jordan River, which was over to the east. They would travel north, and then they would go back west towards Galilee, Since Jesus was probably already at the Jordan River, he was baptizing right before this. He could have taken that route, but he didn't. So the word translated had to probably indicates more than a geographic necessity. Jesus had rather a divine appointment he had to get to in Samaria. Verse five, so he came to a town in Samaria called Saqqar. Near the plot of ground, Jacob had given to his son, Joseph. Jacob's well was there. And Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. Keep that in mind. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. So Jesus is by himself at this point. Verse 9. The Samaritan woman said to him, you are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews don't associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God, And who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. So here we have a Jewish man who's sitting by himself at a well in Samaria. This would have been territory that Jesus would not have have been expected to talk with anyone here. The Samaritan people were ancestors of a northern Israelite tribes of Ephraim and Manasseh who survived this destruction of the kingdom of Israel by the Assyrians. Beyond that, so that's their deep, deep history. But beyond that, the Samaritans would have been half Jewish and half Gentile. They didn't have pure blood, right? So they weren't accepted by Jews. They were considered unclean. So Jesus wouldn't have hung out with this woman. It would have been frowned upon by every single Jewish person at the time. It's one of the reasons that when Jesus teaches about the Good Samaritan, right, the Good Samaritan, the other really famous story, the teachers of the law are so upset because nothing good comes out of Samaria. Samaritans live there. I can't associate with those people. And so the Jewish teachers of the law are upset with that. But Jesus reaches through these social barriers. And not just social barriers, Jesus was a man. And Jewish men did not talk to women they do not know. And so Jewish, or Jesus, who is Jewish, I'm going to try to reconcile that, Jesus reaches through these social barriers, barriers, through the gender barriers. Oh, and then one more thing, there's moral issues with this woman as well, which if you want to get into the entire story, you can read through it. But it says she's had multiple husbands. Jesus tells her this. You've had multiple husbands. And the one that you're living with right now, you're not married to. And so beyond that, we have moral barriers that Jesus reaches through to have a conversation with this woman. There is no reason Jesus and this woman should be talking with one another. On top of that, remember how I noted that that you should remember that it was noon Okay, most of you have probably heard this before, but the whole reason this lady was drawing water at noon was so she didn't have to talk to anybody. All the other ladies would go early in the cool of the day to be able to gather their water for their chores for the remainder of the day. It was nice and cool. It wasn't going to be as hot. They could probably chat a little bit while they were there about, I don't know what they would chat about back then. I don't even try. Like, oh, you're a Samaritan? Cool, me too. That's what they chatted about. And then they would leave and no one would be left there. And so this Samaritan woman waits till noon when no one would have been there. So she in isolation could go grab her water and escape the judgment, escape the eyes that would have been on her, those people who would have been judging her from a distance, whatever it may have been. She could have escaped those things. So no one should have been drawing water at this well either at the time that Jesus was sitting there. It wasn't that this woman even said, hey, sir, you look like a Jewish rabbi. I'm hungry to know your God. Can you tell me how to do that? She didn't engage him. She wasn't the one asking to know about God in any way. She was just doing her daily chores, minding her business. When this stranger asked her for a drink and then steered the conversation into spiritual matters, she wasn't seeking to know God. Her, her current guilt over her live-in boyfriend and her five marriages, which had probably ended because of multiple adulteries, caused her to keep her distance from God. The only explanation for this story is that Jesus was seeking a sinner who wasn't even seeking him. That's the only explanation for this story. And the application for those of us who know Jesus is, if we want to be like our savior, we should be seeking out unlikely candidates for salvation and try to steer the conversation in a a direction of Jesus. I mean, even for me, I get, it's hard. I size up someone who seems to need to know Jesus and then I shy away because, oh, I rationalize it in my head of, oh, they probably, they're probably too busy. Oh, their gas just finished pumping. I shouldn't have a conversation with them. I don't want to rock the boat. I'm too closely related to them. Whatever it may be, I shy away from those things too. But it's a necessity for us to lean into those. But maybe I'm speaking to someone who has just a notoriously sinful past and right now is living in sin, and the application for you is that Jesus seeks after such people like you and seeks after such people like me, like his disciples. Jesus said that he came to seek and save which was lost. He saved a thief on a cross who was dying next to him. He saved a chief of sinners, Paul, who was persecuting the church. He saved this immoral Samaritan woman. He wants to save others as well. We need to be willing, though, to be intentional with our oikos. There was nothing accidental about this interaction with Jesus. There was intention there. It's proved by the fact that he went through Samaria instead of around it. There is a divine appointment for Jesus. When the opportunity arose, Jesus, through all the social barriers that we talked about before, seized it. She's going about her day, doing her chores, and Jesus stops her where she was at. And he didn't say, hey, you should come to my tabernacle on Sunday. No, he didn't say the band is great and they have free muffins. It's not what Jesus said. He introduced her to the savior of the world, which happened to be him, of course, a little bit easier introduction. But he introduced her to the savior of the world right where she was in the middle of her day. That's where he introduced the savior of the world. If Jesus would have waited until social constructs were broken down to talk with her, if he would have waited for his friends to get back so he felt a little bit more bold in the situation and like the disciples are like peer pressure, like Jesus, you can talk to her about God or what, right? If he would have waited for that to happen, this probably doesn't happen but he saw a woman in desperate need of introduction to the savior of the world and he pulled the trigger. So it continues to beg the question for us, are we intentional with our eight to 15 people or are we waiting for them to come to us so the pastor can do the spiritual things and I just need to be nice to them? That's not what the Bible teaches. It's not what the Bible talks about. The Bible actually says the fields are ripe for harvest. The fields are ripe for harvest. For harvest, John 4, 35, if you skip down a little bit in that story, Jesus says, don't you have a saying? It's still four months until harvest. I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Now, when I was in high school, I was a senior in high school. Um, and I was, uh, we had a close family friend. She was a sophomore. She went to uh, school with me. Her name was Lauren. And Lauren had been having like this back and forth with a friend of hers and trying to talk to them about Jesus, and, and uh, Lauren said, she called me, which is weird because people don't often call people anymore, um, but she called me on my landline and said, hey, Peter, would you be willing to talk to this girl? And I was like, yeah, about what? She was like, I've been talking to her about Jesus. I've been trying to do my best, um, and she's just like anti-church, hates church, hates church, I was like, you want me to talk to her? Like, I'm not going to do any better than you can do. She's like, please, just try. You, you try. I was like, okay. And so I called her, and I was terrified, right? Like, I don't know if her dad's going to answer the phone and, like, <laughs> cuss at me or, you know, whatever. But I was terrified. And so I called her, and it was like a 15, 20-minute conversation. I would know what I was doing right? And at the end of the conversation, I was just like, hey, sir, are you interested in placing your faith in Jesus? She was like, no, bye. Boop. I'm like, oh, <laughs> cool. Cool salvation story that we have here, right? Um, and so then I, I, I had never met her, but she went to our school. And so Lauren introduced me to her. And uh, I just, it was one of those like high bye things in the hallway for you high school students. You guys know how that goes. Um, and, uh, and then she called me two weeks later. I was like, hello? She was like, hey, can we talk about Jesus a little bit? I'm like, yeah, sure. We want to go rounds again. I'm fine to go rounds again. I told you everything I knew already in 15 minutes. So I don't know what else to tell you at this point. Well, she had gone on to tell me then that uh, she went and had a, she was having headaches and she went and got a scan on her brain. And uh, the scans confirmed that as a 15 year old, she had a tumor, a cancerous tumor on her brain. And they were still trying to figure out what it was uh, that they were going to do about it. They didn't offer a prognosis. They didn't say, hey, you've got two weeks to live or, you know, whatever. But it started her thinking about what eternity looks like. And so her and I had a conversation. The Conversation went for about an hour, went much better the second time, right? Um, and, and at the end of the conversation, I asked her, do you want to place your faith in Jesus? And she said, I don't think so. I was like, "Ugh." I don't know if she ever came to faith. I don't know if she survived the brain tumor, but I do know that this girl was completely and totally anti-church. And Lauren, after inviting her to church, the girl said no. And so Lauren continued to be intentional and said, okay, who else is in my life that can maybe talk to her? She was like, Peter knows some stuff. Let's do that. Like, that was a terrible decision, but I'll do my best. So we did, And it was just something that, that, that she was just intentional with her. Completely and totally intentional. And it isn't that people simply aren't willing to come to church because there are people who are willing to step into our doors. People who are a little more brave, maybe who have been to church in the past, whatever it may be, and are just like, you know what? Yeah, I can don the doors of the church. How scary can they be? The problem isn't that people won't come here. The problem is the church won't go to people. And that's the scary part about where we live. That's the scary part about the 20% of people who are coming to church on a regular basis. I would venture to say the problem isn't theirs, it's ours. Church, it is our responsibility to go to people. Jesus was very clear here that the fields are ripe for harvest. It isn't that there's a shortage of crop. It isn't that the crop doesn't understand tradition anymore. It isn't that the crop doesn't listen to truth. It isn't that the crop is addicted to technology. It isn't that the crop just doesn't get how church is supposed to be done anymore. The crop is there. Jesus was clear about the fact that the crop is there. The fields are ripe for harvest. The issue is, is the farmers aren't willing to go out and get it. church, that's our responsibility. And I'm not asking you to go to a street corner. I'm not asking you to get, you know, a milk crate and stand on top of it and start yelling at people and telling them they're sinners, they're going to hell and all that stuff. I'm asking you to be intentional with people you already know, that I already know. I'm asking you to pray for people and love people the way that Jesus would love them. And then as you're talking to them about G, uh, just about whatever, you turn that conversation to Jesus. And I know the question that comes out of everybody's mind at this point. The question is, well, what is it that I'm supposed to say? Because I don't know as much as you, pastor. I don't, have, I don't have a degree in theology. I don't know how to argue those points. What if they say something and make me look stupid? They might. I've looked dumb before. I'll look dumb again. I do pretty regularly on a Sunday morning. And they might. The good news, though, is that there's a proven method to not sounding dumb. There is a proven method to talking with those who have a relationship with you about Jesus. That method is simply to tell your story. To tell your story. We need to tell our stories and let God work. That's our responsibility. I mean, read with me even in, in verses 39 to 42. It's part of the story that's glazed over a lot of times here with the woman at the well. After the woman at the well came to faith, it says this in verse 39, many of the Samaritans in that ta- from that town believed in him because of what? The woman's testimony. It wasn't because Jesus met every single one of them at a well when they were drawing water. It was because she had a very life-changing encounter with the Savior of the world. So much so that she couldn't not talk about it. And she went back and she told the people in her what? Oikos. And because of her testimony, they came to believe. Their testimony, he told me everything I ever did. Verse 40, so when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with him. And he stayed two days, 41. And because uh, because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we've heard for ourselves. And we know that this man really is the savior of the world. And I know what some of you are thinking right now. You're thinking, yeah, but they came and talked to Jesus. And so after they talked to Jesus, of course they're going to come to faith. First of all, they came to faith before they came to, came to talk to Jesus. Secondly, though, if you believe the only way that people can encounter the words of Jesus is by him audibly talking to you, you're forsaking and taking for granted the greatest text to ever walk the face of the earth, which is Scripture. It is our responsibility to tell our story to say God, or to to say to whoever, God has done incredible things in my life. Man, let me tell you my testimony. Let me tell you about a time that my dad had cancer and the way that he walked through it. And man, I prayed for him to get healed and I prayed for him to get healed. But man, you know what? God didn't heal him. And I was angry and I was frustrated and I didn't know why God would take such a godly man from this earth. But you know what he did through that? Man, he delivered at least 15 people that I personally know of, who came to Christ because of my dad walking the way in which he did during his sickness. You're telling me people are gonna argue with that? People are gonna make you feel dumb by sharing your story? And not all of them are like that. For me, when someone asked me to share my testimony, i say, well, I grew up in a Christian house. Okay, boring. That's what half of you are saying. Like, That's my testimony. I get it. I grew up in a Christian house. I never did any crazy drugs or anything like that. And I still come to church 50 years later. Great. But guess what? You also have a story inside of that testimony. There is power in every single story. That was my story. I was born in a Christian home. I'm a pastor now. Never really veered that far off the track. But that doesn't mean that trials and temptations haven't come into my life, which allows me to relate to my world, which allows me to say, hey, in this hardship or whatever it was, God delivered me. God is continuing to work through me. God has shown me what it looks like to be a good dad. Man, I know that you are struggling as a dad. And as you're struggling as a dad, I look to God on a regular basis because I got five crazy kids and I figure it out as I go too. Let's figure it out together. Man, we could point to scripture. Oh, it doesn't matter what the story is. You tell your story. And then as you tell your story and talk about how Jesus changed your life and you introduce them to Jesus, you let God work. And that's exactly what the Samaritan woman did. She told her story. She introduced them to Jesus and allowed him to work. That's our responsibility. No one can argue with what God has done in my life and you let God work through that. And each and every one of us has a unique vantage point. Each and every one of us has unique stories, unique backgrounds, unique families, upbringings, whatever. Which means that each of us have a different set of eight to 15 people that God has put in our life. Different people. You all can reach way more people than I'll ever be able to. Because I sit in an office all week with people who already know Jesus. People come into the office all week with people who already know Jesus. It's not my job as a pastor to be able to introduce everybody to Jesus. It's my job as a Christian to find my eight to 15 and invite them to church or introduce them to Jesus or whatever it may be. But it's your responsibility as a Christian to do that as well. It's not my job. And there's nothing. So, so each of you have some oikos cards, right? That we stuffed into the uh, into the program. Each of you have something that looks like this, okay? And those Oikos cards, there's nothing magical or special about it. If you prefer a yellow pad and a piece of paper, go nuts, right? We just did these because they look prettier and you can put them in your Bible and they'll stay longer. But this week, what I want you to know is that there are 8 to 15 people in your life that God has placed there intentionally, has put there for a reason, for you to impact them. And the question is, are you doing your job? Those 8 to 15 people, there are 15 slots here. And mine's filled out because I pray over them every single day. And I have a massive family, which means the first six are taken up by my immediate family. But this is just simply a guideline. And I don't want you to fill this out today. I don't want you to look through it right now and be like, oh yeah, these are the people. I don't. I want you to bring these back next week empty. But what I do want you to do is every single day this week, I want you to commit to just praying over a blank card, to praying over a blank slate for God to be able, for you to just say, God, can you put, can you just elevate the people in my life? Elevate those people who need, that, that, that are in my oikos that I need to affect for the kingdom of God. Maybe you don't even know some of those people yet. Maybe you don't know their name. You know what? I, uh, I got one on my, my card that says cop neighbor. Right there, number 14. I don't know their name, which is awesome. Because I know at some point, if I continue to pray for them and be intentional with them, that I'm gonna get an opportunity to share with them about Jesus. Maybe you don't even know the people. The reality is, though, is everybody has a responsibility. If you're sitting in this room and you call Jesus your Savior, this is your responsibility. And maybe you don't buy into the whole Oikos thing. That's fine. I don't care if it's 8 to 15. You want to go 50, go nuts. But what I will say is that the church's responsibility isn't simply to learn more, the church's responsibility is also to do more. And introduce Jesus to more people. This morning, as is our tradition, we get the opportunity to uh, to partake in communion. Uh, it's the first Sunday of the month, and this is just kind of our our tradition. And as we take communion, I want you to pray that God would soften your heart and allow Him to allow you to see Him with an urgency that requires action for you to be able to search your heart and recognize there's an urgency there. Because for those of you who who are new to faith, communion was established by Jesus in the upper room on the night that he was betrayed. And we receive communion as a way to remember who Christ is and what it is that he's done in our lives. Now, you don't have to be a member of FBH in order to partake in communion here. We simply ask that you have acknowledged Christ as your savior and are part of the family of Christ before taking those elements. If you're a regular attender here, um, and maybe you haven't been with us for the last couple times, uh, communion is gonna be served differently. We're gonna be pass- passing the plates from the back while music is playing. In the tray, the cups, they look like this. There's one stacked on top of the other. So make sure you grab two cups, on the bottom is the bread, on the top is the juice. And as our diaconate comes and as they serve, I'd ask that you take those and you commune with God. It's the idea of communion. It's the idea of searching our hearts. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty eight says, everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink of the cup. I'm not here to examine you. Your spouse isn't here to examine you. Your kids, your neighbors, this is between you and God. And so I would ask that as we, we launch into just our first song, if you want to sing, great. And they're going to play lightly behind it, and they're going to sing, and we're going to do worship. And then after everybody has the elements, after the first song, we'll take the elements together. And then once you take the elements, we would just ask for our usher's sake that you would just pass those cups to the, to the aisles so they can pick them up for you. And then we're going to finish with the song. We're going to finish by worshiping our Lord today but maybe you're someone who hasn't yet come to faith. And the the, the only thing stopping you from doing so is maybe a little bit of fear. Maybe you don't understand this whole church thing yet. I don't know. But we're gonna pray and I'm gonna invite you into the family of God. And I hope you respond. And if you do, I would love to take communion with you today for the first time. Bow your heads and let's pray. Father, I pray that you would just prepare our hearts for this moment, for this special moment that you established in the upper room with your closest followers. God, I pray that we would recognize what this moment is about. It's not about the way that the elements are distributed. It's not about um, what your neighbor is doing or our friends are doing or whatever, God. It's about simply receiving the elements and communing with you, searching our hearts as we partake in communion and remembrance of you and your son and what he did on the cross. And God, I pray if there's anybody in here who has not yet done that, not yet accepted the free salvation that you offer us, God, I pray that they would pray along with me right now. With heads still bowed and eyes still closed, that they would pray the ABCs as we do, A, that just say, Father, I admit I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. That I mess up every single day. God, and I need your grace. I need it poured out upon me. Because, be I believe that you sent your son on the cross to die for me. Because of the dumb stuff that I do every single day. Because of the sins that I did yesterday, the sins I'm going to do today, and the sins I'm going to continue to commit. God, I I believe you sent your son to take care of all that and see that I would just choose to follow you every single day. God, that we recognize there's an urgency here to your kingdom that we're not promised tomorrow. And so, God, I really do pray that we would choose to follow you and that we would allow our oikos in on the best-kept secret in the world. We love you, Father. In your son's name pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the FBH Podcast. We hope that you enjoyed this week's sermon. Music was by the band Broke for Free, and if you would like more information about our church, feel free to check out fbhanford.org. That's fbhanford.org. Thank you again, and we'll see you next week.